Hello, this is Dr. Pengxian Chen, the Editor-in-Chief of Harvardum. The December issue is a focus issue on devices. The first article is titled, Outcomes Associated with Pacemaker Implantation Following Transcaster Aortic Valve Replacement, a nationwide cohort study. The study was based on the Administrative Hospital Discharge Database in France from 2010 to 2019. Among 520,000 patients hospitalized for aortic stenosis, 49,000 were treated with TAVR. A total of 29,000 patients had follow-up of greater than six months, with a median of 1.7 years. 22% already had permanent pacemaker at the baseline, and 22% underwent permanent pacemaker implantation within the first 30 days post-TAVR. The authors found that permanent pacemaker at baseline and within 30 days post-TAVR are independently associated with higher mortality and heart failure hospitalization during follow-up. The next one is titled Permanent Pacemaker Implantation Late After Transcaster Aortic Valve Implantation. In a prospective transcaster aortic valve implantation, or TAVI registry, the authors identified 1,059 patients discharged after TAVI without permanent pacemaker. Among them, 62 patients, or 5.9%, underwent permanent pacemaker implantation at a median of 305 days after discharge for TAVI. They found that the permanent pacemaker implantation late after TAVI is infrequent and is associated with clinical symptoms in half the patients. Impairment of AV conduction was the indication in three quarters of patients. First degree AV block and new LBBB after TAVI, as well as valve-in-valve procedure during follow-up emerged as independent predictors. Up next, the three-year outcomes after transcaster aortic valve implantation, comparison of a restrictive versus a liberal strategy for pacemaker implantation. The purpose of this study was to compare median-term outcomes between PPI implantation strategies. TAVI was performed in 884 patients at Author Center. Of these, 383 consecutive pacemaker-naive patients underwent TAVI with the liberal PPI strategy, and subsequently, 384 with the restrictive strategy. The restrictive strategy significantly reduced the percentage of patients undergoing PPI before discharge. The instance of the primary endpoint, all-cause mortality and hospitalization for heart failure, after three years was similar in both groups as well as all-cause mortality. The authors conclude that a restricted PPI strategy after TAVI reduces PPI significantly and is safe in the medium-term follow-up over three years. Coming up is long-term complications in patients implanted with subcutaneous implantable cardioverter defibrillators Real-world data from the extended ELISIR experience. A total of 1,254 patients implanted with an SICD from January 2015 to June 2020 were enrolled from a 19-institution European registry. 
the authors found that the overall complication rate over a 23.2 months of follow-up is a multi-center SICD cohort was 9.3%. Early unanticipated device battery depletions occurred in 2.2% of patients, while lead fracture was observed in 0.3%, which is in line with the expected rates reported by Boston Scientific. The next article is Electrical Abnormalities with Senju Abbott Pacing Leads, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. The purpose of this study was to determine the malfunction rates of current pacemaker leads through uh, meta-analysis. Eight studies with a total of 14,579 leads were included. Abbott accounted for 10,838 or 74%, Medtronic 2510 or 17%, Boston Scientific 849 or 6%, and Michael Port 382 or 3% of the leads. The most common lead abnormalities was lead noise with normal impedance. Abbott leads are associated with an increased risk of abnormalities compared with leads of other manufacturers primarily manifesting as lead noise with normal impedance and are associated with an increased risk of lead reprogramming and lead revision or extraction. Coming up is subcutaneous implantable cardioverter defibrillator and defibrillation testing, a propensity-matched pilot study. Among 1,290 patients, a total of 566 propensity-matched patients, including 283 with defibrillation testing and 283 without defibrillation testing serve as study population. Over a median follow-up of 25.3 months, defibrillation testing performance was not associated with significant differences in cardiovascular mortality and ineffective shocks. The authors also found that the Praetorian score is capable of correctly identifying a large percentage of patients at risk for ineffective shock conversion in both cohorts. The next paper is the Infectious Consequences of Hematoma from Cardiac Implantable Electronic Device Procedures and the Role of Antibiotic Envelope, a Rapid Trial Analysis. All 6,800 study patients were included in this analysis. Among them, 3,429 are controlled and 3,371 received envelope. Acute hematoma incidence was 2.2% at 30 days with no significant difference between treatment groups. Among control patients, hematoma carried a greater than 11-fold risk of developing a major CIED infection. This risk was significantly mitigated with antibacterial envelope use with an 82% reduction in major CIDED infection among envelope patients who developed hematoma compared to control. The following article is lower rate limit for pacing by cardiac resynchronization defibrillators. Should lower rate programming be reconsidered? All dual-chamber CRTD devices in the Remote Patient Monitoring Altitude Database between 2006 and 2011 were queried. Data analyzed included 61,881 subjects. 
Low rate limit ranged from 40 to 85 beats per minute. They found that lower low rate limit was associated with improved survival, with low rate limit 40 associated with a larger survival benefit. This was significant for all three heart rate scores subgroups. Up next is outcomes and the periprocedural management of cardiac implantable electronic devices in patients with carcinoid heart disease. A total of 27 patients with cumulative follow-up of 75 patient years were included for analysis. The majority of the implanted devices were dual-chamber permanent pacemakers, so 63%. Among all car- carcinoid heart disease patients who underwent any cardiac surgery, the instance of CIED implantation was 12%. Median time from implant to death was 2.5 years with one-year mortality of 15%. This data suggests that the CIED implantation can be performed relatively safely. Clinicians must be aware of the relevant carcinoid physiology and take appropriate precautions to mitigate risks. The next article is tissues attached to retrieved leadless pacemakers, histopathological evaluation of tissue composition, in relation to implantation time and the complications. All 15 consecutive successful nano-steam leadless pacemaker retrievals in a tertiary center were included. Adherent tissue was present in 14 or 15 retrievals. The tissue consisted of fibrosis and thrombosis, or thrombosis only. In short-term uh, retrievals or less than one year, Mostly fresh thrombi without fibrosis were seen. In later retrievals, the tissue consisted of fibrosis often with organizing or lytic thrombi. These results suggest that fibrosis and thrombus adhering to leadless pacemaker are common and encapsulate the leadless pacemakers as seen in transvenous pacemakers. Leadless pacemakers may adhere to the tricuspid valve or subvalvular apparatus affecting retrieval safety. The end-of-life strategy should be optimized by incorporating risk stratification for excessive fibrotic encapsulation and adhesions. Coming up is time to diagnosis of acute complications after cardiovascular implantable electronic device insertion and optimal timing of discharge within the first 24 hours. The purpose of this study was to determine the precise timing of acute complication diagnosis after CIED implantation and optimal timing for same-day discharge. A total of 2,421 patients underwent implantation. Most acute complications are diagnosed either within the first six hours or more than 24 hours after implantation. With rare exception, patients can be considered for discharge after six hours of appropriate monitoring. In addition to papers related to devices, the journal also published non-device-related papers. The first one is titled Extracellular Matrix Remodeling Precedes Atrial Fibrillation, Results of the PREDICT-AF Trial. 
The study included 150 patients without a history of AF with a CHAST2 DS2 VASC score of greater than or equal than 2 at an increased risk of developing AF. The left atrial appendage was excised and blood samples were collected during elective cardiothoracic surgery for biomarker discovery. Participants were followed for two years with Holter monitoring to determine any atrial tachyarrhythmia after a 50-day blanking period. 18 patients, or 12%, developed instant AF. The biomarker analysis showed that atrial remodeling occurs long before instant AF and implies future potential for early patient identification and therapies to prevent AF. The next paper is uh, recommendations regarding cardiac stereotactic body radiotherapy for treatment refractory ventricular tachycardia. The purpose of this study was to establish an expert consensus regarding the conduct and use of cardiac stereotactic body radiation, or CSBRT, for refractory VT. Results show that there was strong agreement regarding the experimental status of the procedure and the pre uh, preference for treatment in clinical trials. CSBRT should be con conducted at specialized centers with a strong expertise in the management of patients with ventricular arrhythmias and in stereotactic body radiotherapy for moving targets. CSBRT should be restricted to patients with refractory VT with optimal anti-arrhythmic medication who underwent prior castor ablation or have contraindications. Prospective trials and the pooled registries are needed to gain further insight into this promising treatment option for patients with refractory VT. Coming up is ventricular arrhythmias ablated successfully in the subvalvular interleaflet triangle between the right and left coronary cusps electrophysiological characteristics and castor ablation. The authors studied 28 ventricular arrhythmias ablated successfully at the right-left subvalvular interleaved triangle, or RLILT, between right and left coronary cusps. 96% of ventricular arrhythmias had an early precordial electrocardiographic transition with high R-wave amplitude in lead V1. Earliest potential was recorded at RLILT in 13 of 28 patients and left pulmonary sinus cusp in 6 of 28 patients. Mapping the summit communicating vein failed because of anatomic or instrumental limitations in these 19 patients. The authors conclude that ventricular arrhythmias ablated successfully at the RLILT have unique electrophysiological characteristics, and RLILT may be an endocardial anatomic ablation target for ventricular arrhythmias originating from the base of the LV summit. Next up is clinician needs and the perceptions about the cardio neural ablation for recurrent vasovagal syncope, an international clinician survey. There is increasing interest in cardioneural ablation as a treatment of vasovagal syncope, despite no randomized clinical trial data. 
The authors uh, conducted a survey in 118 physicians. The majority of responders, so 79%, would consider referring a patient with refractory vasovagal syncope for cardio uh, neural ablation. There is widespread support for well-developed randomized clinical trials to confirm the hypothesized clinical benefit of cardio neural ablation, provide data to guide the risk-benefit equations during patient selection, and appropriately estimate the placebo effect. Coming up is intracellular uptake of agents that block the HERT channel can, be, uh, can confound the assessment of QT interval prolongation and arrhythmic risk. Olisteridine is a biased ligand at the mu-opioid uh, receptor, recently approved for the treatment of acute pain. In a third QT study, corrected QT or QTC prolongation displayed peaks at 2.5 and 60 minutes after a supra-therapeutic dose. The mean plasma concentration peaked at 5 minutes, declining rapidly thereafter. The purpose of this study was to examine the basis for the delayed effect of uh, olisiridine to prolong the QTC interval in rapid LV wedge preparations. The authors found that a gradual increase of intracellular access to drugs to herb channels as a result of their intracellular uptake and accumulation can significantly delay effects on repolarization, thus confounding the assessment of QT interval prolongation and arrhythmia risk when studied acutely. The multi-iron channel effect of olisiridine, late-sodium channel current inhibition in particular, point to a low risk of developing Tosada palm. The last original research article is titled Inhibitory G-Protein-Mediated Modulation of Slow Delayed Rectifier Potassium Channels Contributes to Increased Susceptibility to Arrhythmogenesis in Aging Heart. Slow Delayed Rectifier Potassium Current, or IKS, is an important component of reparation reserve during sympathetic nerve excitement. However, little is known about age-related functional changes of IKS and its involvement in age-dependent arrhythmogenesis. The authors found no difference in IKS density in ventricular cardiomyocytes between young and old guinea pigs. However, in contrast to IKS potentiation in young hearts, isoproteranol evoked an acute inhibition of IKS in a concentration-dependent manner in old guinea pig hearts. The beta-2 adrenergic receptor antagonist, but not beta-1 adrenal receptor antagonist, reversed the inhibitory response. The authors conclude that the beta adrenergic activation acutely induces the inhibitory IKS response in aging guinea pig hearts through beta adrenergic G sub I signaling, which contributes to increased susceptibility to arrhythmogenesis in aging hearts. The above original articles are followed by a viewpoint article written by Dr. Michelle Hasagera titled Towards Radiofrequency Caster Ablation of Atrial Fibrillation. This article is the 12th and the final entry in our series of articles to celebrate the 30th year of RF uh, ablation. I hope you enjoy this podcast for Heart Rhythm. I'm the Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Pen Shen Chen.